Father, we do ask for the teaching ministry of your spirit. Lord, we don't want to just take this time for granted. We need to hear from you. So we're asking you to, to speak through a man, Lord. Overcome everything in me and about me that would hinder that. Fill me with your spirit and fill all of us with your spirit right now, enabling us to receive the word of God and to be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you realize that in your lifetime, if you are average, you'll eat about 150 cows? You'll eat around 3,000 chickens, 225 lambs, 26 sheep, and you'll eat about 310 pigs in bacon and ham alone. You'll consume about 26 acres of grain, and you'll eat around 50 acres of fruit and vegetables. Now, some of you here are maybe vegetarian, some of you may eat only vegan, some of you may be all about gluten-free, but I want you to know there is no diet that you can be on that will keep you from drifting away from God and from the Word of God, except for one diet. There is one diet. Jesus gives us that in Matthew 4, verse 4. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The Word of God is the one thing that you and I must take in regularly if we're going to be able to resist the flow of culture. That is the one regular diet item that we must be on in these last days if we're going to stand firm. And that's what Paul was trying to get Timothy to understand when he writes his young son in the faith, his very last epistle, 2 Timothy. He's basically saying to Timothy, Timothy, if you're going to stand firm against this drift that's going on, that Paul was noticing, not just the drift of culture, but the drift of the church that was being caught up in the drift of culture, if you're going to be able to withstand this drift, Timothy, you're going to have to dig in your heels, and you're going to have to make sure that you are committed to and regularly intaking the Word of God. So again, those of you that have been with us, the series we're doing on 2 Timothy, remember the Apostle Paul is... In a Roman dungeon, dungeon, he is in chains. He knows martyrdom is around the corner. He's about to die. He's writing his last kind of will and testament, so to speak, to the church, addressed to his young son of the faith, Timothy, and urging him to resist the drift and to stand firm. And today we're going to get to the third chapter of 2 Timothy, where Paul wants to under, Timothy to understand that the kind of days that are, com, are coming upon the church in the last days. And so he begins with this vivid, vivid sketch of the kinds of challenges the church will face. And against that background, he's going to charge Timothy to resist and to hold his ground and stand for the truth of the Word of God. What Paul's going to do is he's going to emphasize to Timothy that this is not just a passing thing that the world is going through. That you can't just go lay low, Timothy, and this will all pass by. That No, he wants Timothy to know that things are bad, but they're going to get worse. This is a good thing for us to remember as well. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he says this. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, the Greek word used here that's 
you know, translated difficult or hard actually is used in situations of hard to bear kinds of times or violent times. In fact, it's only used one other place in the New Testament, this word, and it's used to describe the two Gadarene demoniacs. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, they were so violent that it says no one could pass by that way. That is the word used here of the kind of times that will, the church will face in the last days. So this gives us an idea of the kind of seasons the church is going, needs to expect and be prepared for. They will be painful and perilous and hard to endure. And he goes on to describe verse 2, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So in just three verses, Paul employs no fewer than 19 expressions by which to describe the wickedness of mankind in the last days. It's interesting, if you look at it closely, you notice that the first and last phrases particularly, notice that it starts off with their lovers of self and ends up with what they should have been, but weren't, lovers of God. Instead of being first and foremost lovers of God, they're lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. Then it goes on to describe them as being proud and arrogant and abusive, which, by the way, if you have an exaggerated opinion of yourself, if it's all about you and you're focused just on loving yourself, then it's easy to look at others with contempt and to even look down on others. And I think Hollywood is a perfect example of that. The speeches given at their award ceremonies like the Academy Awards are perfect examples of that. In fact, I want you to see a photo of what it looks like when someone is so self-absorbed, how they treat others. Put that next slide up if you would. See, the selfish man, that's a hedgehog if you don't know. I think it's a perfect picture of what selfishness looks like. When you're all rolled up in yourself, all you have to offer others is your, you know, spine, your sharp spines. You know, and here's the thing about the only hope for a culture that is all rolled up in itself and looks at others with contempt and down on others because of the exaggerated opinion they have of themselves. The only solution to that kind of culture, there's no government program that can fix that. The only solution is the gospel. The gospel promises a new birth, a new creation. The gospel is what turns somebody inside out. I so appreciate how Billy Graham constantly reminded us as a nation that the solution to the problems in this country are found in the gospel. Until men and women change and boys and girls change, the, the nation cannot change. Well, Paul goes on to elaborate about the condition of increasingly decline of what's going to happen in the last days. And he says it's not just the condition of the people, but there's going to be a certain teaching, a false teaching that's going to increase. Starting in verse 5, 
He says they hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected as regards the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. So now Paul makes a reference to these false teachers. And then he mentions Janus and Jambres. These names actually were passed down according to Jewish tradition as the two chief magicians in Pharaoh's court during the days of Moses. And here's the actual passage. It doesn't mention their names. Their names are passed down orally. But in the passage, it says, Exodus 7:11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. And they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same miracles by their secret arts. Remember when Moses cast down his staff, it turned into a snake? And then the two magicians, and he's talking about Janus and Jambres, cast theirs, and they turned into little snakes. And then Moses' staff ate theirs, ate those snakes, his snake. Well, Paul is drawing a historical parallel here. What's his point? What's his point to, you know, paralleling Janus and Jambres with the false teachers in the last days? His point is basically this, that Janus and Jambres were magicians. The false teachers will be also imposters and deceivers. They will deceive many. And remember, here's the thing about being deceived. When you're, if you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. As soon as you know you're deceived, you're no longer deceived. Isn't that right? Let me say this, anytime some spiritual leader, and this is going to, this will happen a lot in your lifetime, anytime some spiritual leader or teacher comes up with something new and different that no Christian has ever done, said before, taught in church history, you should be very suspicious about that. And anytime a teacher or leader begins to have their own vocabulary that you must know in order to be in the know, you should be suspicious about that. These are the kind of things that we're going to increasingly see in the last days. So what is Timothy to do about it? And what are we to do about it? Well, that's what Paul says in this next paragraph. In fact, he's going to start off saying, but as for you, Timothy, remember he uses that phrase four times in 2 Timothy, but as for you, Timothy, but as for you, but as for you, but as for you, starting in verse 10, he says, but as for you, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me in Antioch at Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, and again, he uses that, but as for you, but it's translated here, just you, but it's that same phrase. But, but as for you, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. So you might actually paraphrase what Paul's, Paul's got a, like a double exhortation here in verse 10 and verse 14. 
It's, it's like he's saying this to Timothy, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase it for you. He's saying, but as for you, Timothy, in spite of all the current false teaching, what you have been following closely is my teaching, Paul says, my doctrine, my way of life, together with my purpose and faith and patience and love and endurance and persecutions and sufferings. Wicked men and charlatans deceiving others and themselves being deceived will still make their strange progress go in the wrong direction. But as for you, you stand firm in my teaching and in my conduct. You dig in your heels. You continue to abide in what you have learned and what you have believed because you know from whom you learned it. So he basically says in verse 10, you have followed me faithfully up till now. Then verse 14, continue to do so. That's what he's saying to Timothy and to us. And then verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the main point of the text to Timothy is hold on to what you have learned to be the truth. Continue in it. Stay in it. What you've learned, what you believe, hold on. Hold on to what you've learned and firmly believed. And then he's going to give, and we're going to look at these now, I'm going to break it down. He gives six reasons for why Timothy and we should hold fast to what we have learned and believed, the truth of the Word of God. Six reasons why we should hold on to it in this environment in the last days of a declining and drifting culture and church. Number one, the first one is this. He says, hold fast to the truth that you've learned and believed because of the character of the people who taught it to you. Verse 14, he says this, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. So he's saying one of the reasons we believe the truth is because of the reliable sources from which we learned the truth. For Timothy, that was probably his mother and his grandmother he's referring to. I mean, notice how he actually says how from childhood, in verse 15, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. And also back in chapter 1, if you remember, he, Paul referred to Lois and Eunice as the source of Timothy's faith. He said, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. Here's a point that Paul's making for Timothy to stand firm on this truth is that the character traits of the people you learned it from matter. They actually give credibility to the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that nice mothers and grandmothers never make mistakes. The point is that there is something that Paul wants to remind Timothy about, about these two women, these two women, that Timothy should be very slow to forsake their teaching in light of what he knows about them. So again, this test is not infallible. This first point is not an infallible test. Paul's basically saying this. Part of the foundation of your confidence in what you have been taught is the kind of people who taught it to you. In other words, reliable testimonies are a valid source of true knowledge. Let me put it this way. 
The quality of the witnesses increases, increase the credibility of the testimony. That's what he's saying. So that's the first thing he points Timothy to. That's only one of six. You know, don't forsake what you've been taught because of who taught it to you. They're reliable sources. All right, secondly, the second point he makes is this. Hold fast to the truth that you've learned and believed because of the marks of divine holiness in the scriptures. He says, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted, listen to this, with the sacred writings. Now, the term sacred writings literally means holy writings. In other words, don't forsake the scriptures, Timothy, because they bear the marks of God's holiness. There's something very different about the scriptures, Timothy. They're holy. They bear the marks intrinsically. And I tell you, that all you got to do is get the Bible and open it up in any other book you want, open it up next to it and read, read one, then read the other. There is no comparison. The Bible just, it bears the mark of holiness. I mean, one time I did that as a little test. I had a Bible open. I'd read it. I read some from the Apocrypha, some from the Koran, some from the Book of Mormon. And I thought there is no contest. The Bible is only, it only has the self-authenticating unique traits when you read it. It just, it just reads like it's supernatural. So Timothy says, stay in what you've learned because these writings are holy and you know it. You know it when you read them. They have distinguishing marks of the one and only God when you read it. Don't turn away from this. But then he doesn't stop. He goes on to a third point. He says, hold fast to the truth that you learned and believed because of the power of the scriptures to save sinners. Okay, let's look at this, verse 14 and 15. Continue what you have learned and firmly believe, number one, because knowing from whom you learned it. Number two, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. And now number three, which are able to make you wise for salvation. You know, one of the ways that we come to trust a message is by the power it has to change people. I ask this question oftentimes in my new members' small group. Why do you believe the Bible is the word of God? And there's lots of good answers given. And one of the answers that's always given is because it changed my life. It had the power to change me. And that's what Paul's talking about right here to Timothy. The scriptures gave you, Timothy, the wisdom that, that can lead a person to salvation. I mean, the scriptures are uniquely suited to subdue folly and impart wisdom. There's no book like it. And, and we just, there's a sense in which, you know, he's saying to Timothy, don't leave the scriptures because there's no truth like this truth that can actually change a person's life. There's no book that you can read that will change your life like this book. That's what he's saying to Timothy. I wonder, you know, and we'll probably, you know, probably find this kind of thing out when we get to heaven is how many people became Christians because they were in a hotel room and just opened up a Gideon Bible. And there was something about that that then, as they're reading it, begins to lead them to salvation. All right, there's a fourth thing that Paul wants Timothy to know why he should hold to the truth. Number four, hold fast to the truth that you've learned and believe because the scriptures brought you to Christ. So again, let's go back to this passage. Continue what you've learned and firmly believe. Number one, knowing from whom you learned it. Number two, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Number three, which are able to make you wise for salvation, power to change you. And number five, through faith in Christ Jesus. And they lead you to Christ. 
He's saying, Timothy, don't leave the truth of the scriptures because they led you to Christ. Now, you know, it's true that Timothy had heard testimonies probably growing up from his mother and grandmother and others. But it was the, it was the wisdom from the spiritual wisdom that came from the scriptures that really helped him and led him to faith in Jesus Christ. So he's saying, don't walk away from the writings that brought you to Christ. How would you walk away from that? And then number five, and now he's going to kind of, this is crescendo right here. He's been building up to this. Hold fast to the truth that you've learned and believed because the scriptures are God-breathed. Scriptures are inspired by God. All scripture, and this is the literal translation, is breathed out by God. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible. All scripture is God-breathed, inspired. Not like some beautiful musical performance is inspired. It's not not what it's talking about. But by being breathed out by God, so so it becomes God's very words. The scriptures are God's very words out of his mouth. So when you read the Bible, you are reading the words out of the mouth of God. I mean, this is a tremendous reality. It's been watered down by so many churches, but this is the reality. When we read the scriptures, we are, this is the words right out of the mouth of God. I want to talk a little bit about what that means, that all scripture, every scripture is inspired by God. Just what is inherent in that thought? I want us to really understand this this morning, because this is the kind of thing that's being chipped away so much. This is, this is part of the drift of the church is going away from this, and we cannot. This is where you dig your heels in, right here. So if you have your Bibles and you follow along in your Bible, you can also turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. The verses will be up on the screen as well, but it begins like this. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Very important verse. It says this. God, after he spoke Long ago to the fathers by the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Okay, this this passage right here gives us the essence of revelation. Revelation means it's it's what's revealed. It's it's, it's something you didn't know before, but now it's been revealed to you. God is disclosing revelation of himself, truth of himself that's never been known before. And so it says God spoke long ago. First of all, let's look at that. God spoke long ago and God spoke in these last days. It's two parts. And actually what he's doing is he's breaking down the Old and New Testament right here. God spoke long ago through the prophets. That's the Old Testament. And God spoke in these last days through his son. That's the New Testament. So let's break it down. First of all, God spoke long ago to the Jewish fathers. Through whom? Through the Old Testament prophets who received God's word under the old covenant. It says, and he spoke through the prophets to the fathers. It says, in many portions, like in many books, many sections, like the Pentateuch, the historical books, the first five books of the Bible, or the prophetical, prophet, prophetic books, or the books of poetry. He spoke in, in many portions and in many books, God spoke. 
He spoke to the Jewish fathers. He spoke by means of the prophets. He says also he spoke in many ways. That means he spoke sometimes through vision, through prophecy, through parable, through type, through symbol, through ceremony, through theophany, sometimes an audible voice. Sometimes God wrote with his own finger in a stone. So he spoke in many ways. So there are many ways in which God spoke, many texts put into many books in our Old Testament. He spoke by many means through the prophets. So God spoke through the Old Testament prophets. And that's the Old Testament. Then he goes on to say, in these last days, since the coming of Christ, he has spoken through his son. So the gospels record God speaking through his son, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are, God is speaking through his son. God, and then the book of Acts, God speaking through the extension of the proclamation of the message of his son. Then the epistles, God is speaking through the deep and profound understanding of the meaning of the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of the son. Even the book of Revelation is the consummation when the son comes back in glory, the consummation of God's communication to the world. So the Old Testament is God speaking, revealing himself. And the New Testament is God speaking and revealing his son. So that's what what that passage is saying. So the Old Testament is God's self-revelation. That is the theme of the Old Testament, God revealing himself. I mean, from Genesis to Malachi and everything in between, God is revealing his character He's revealing his attributes. He's revealing what he's like. He's revealing how he, how he responds to each situation. He's revealing, you know, you know, what he's like and what he does. That's, that's what he does in the Old Testament. It is a revelation of God. It is revelation from God of God to us. That's what the Old Testament is. It is not primarily a story about man. It is not primarily a story about Israel is primarily a story about, about the revelation of God. That is what the primary purpose of it is. And in the New Testament, God is now revealing his son, the life of his son, the message of his son, the work of his son on the cross, and then the coming of his son again. So in either case, you got Old Testament and New Testament. What's the point? The point is God spoke. That's the point. So what we have in our Bible is we have the word of God. We have the word of God. It's not the word of man. It's the word of God. The New Testament was promised by Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26, John 16, 13 through 15, Jesus basically says this. I will bring all things to your remembrance. He's talking to the apostles and others who will be writing the scriptures. I will teach you all things. I will lead you in all the truth. I will show you things to come. So Jesus is promising the writing of the New Testament. It is the word of God. So Hebrews chapter 1 basically says this about Revelation. It says that we have the Old and New Testament, and that is the revelation of God. Old Testament reveals what God is like, and New Testament revealing what the Son of God is like, what his work is done for us so forth. So what we have, that tells us that what we have is revelation. That's the content. The content of your Bible is revelation. Now, what is the process by which we got our Bibles? It's important that we understand this. Let me look at one more passage. 2 Peter 1 talks about the process, how God revealed himself. 
That process is known as inspiration. 2 Peter 1.20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, the genitive case here suggests that Peter has in mind the source or origin of Scripture. He's not, he's not really talking about interpreting the Bible in the sense of what does it mean. He's really talking about the origin. How does it, where does this revelation come from? His point is it doesn't come from a man. It comes from God. So what he's basically saying is no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of origination in one's own mind. How do we know he's saying that for sure? Because the next verse, verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 21, 2 Peter 1, 21. He says, for, he gives a reason now, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What's his point? The point is scripture is not the product of men. It is not the product of the will of men, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is very, very clear and very vital that we get this. So no message, he's saying, was ever conveyed or born or carried along or produced or brought forth by an act of human will. But men were carried along. Men were carried along. Imagine a ship with sails catching the wind. Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to speak from God. The Spirit of God filled them, blew them along, and, out, and that was the inspiration that brought us the revelation of the Word of God. So that's the process. I know I'm saying a lot here, but I want you guys to get this. This is important. The content of the Bible is revelation. It's the word of God. You have the actual word of God. The process by which the content was written down is inspiration. So what that means is we have the word of God. We have the actual word of God. That means this. That means that whatever the Bible says, since God is infallible, has to be infallible. Since God is true, has to be true. That means if the Bible talks about science, then what the Bible says is true. What the Bible talks about history is true. What the Bible talks about mathematics is true. Whatever the Bible talks about, it is the word of God and has to be true. The Bible is accurate in everything it talks about, whether you're talking about geology, meteorology, physiology, biology, anthropology, astronomy, hydrology. I don't care. The Bible speaks about it. It's accurate. It's truthful. I want to give you a good example. Now, people may have, may have an incomplete understanding or a wrong understanding. They think the Bible is wrong, but, but their understanding is wrong. But the Bible is always right. I'll give you an example of that. I want to look at one prophecy, for, just for fun. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 26. Now here comes a prophecy to Ezekiel about the destruction of the city of Tyre. Tyre was a Phoenician stronghold. Tyre was a pretty significant city, a large city on the coast of Phoenicia, now today known as Palestine. Okay, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, chapter 26, verse 2, to telling about the destruction of Tyre. Let's look at this. Ezekiel 26, verse 2. Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gateway of the peoples is broken. It is open to me. I shall be filled now that she is laid waste. In other words, Tyre's mocking Jerusalem, mocking Jerusalem. So because of that mocking, God's going to judge Tyre. 
Here's the judgment. Notice how specific this judgment is. Therefore, verse 3, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre. I'll bring upon you many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. She'll be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, declares the Lord, and she will become spoil for the nations. Also her daughters who are on the mainland will be slain by the sword, and they will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I will bring upon Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings and horses and chariots, cavalry and a great army. He will slay your daughters in the, on the mainland with the sword. He will make siege walls against you, cast up a mount against you, and raise up a large shield against you. The blow of his battering rams will be direct against your walls, and with his axes he'll break down your towers. Because of the multitude of his horses, the dust raised by them will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of cavalry and wagons and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that is breached. With the hooves of his horses, he'll trample all your streets. He'll slay your people with the sword, and your strong pillars will come down to the ground. Also, they'll make spoil of your riches and prey of your merchandise. Break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. So I will silence the sound of your songs and the sound of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock. You will be a place for the spreading of nets. You will be built no more. For I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Lord God. Now, that's a pretty detailed prophecy, isn't it? Now, let's just um, recognize a little history now. Tyre was a great Phoenician city. From the 7th century B.C., it, contro it controlled Phoenicia. It had strong walls. About 150 feet high were the walls. Very high. They were 15 feet thick. In fact, it was actually flourishing when Joshua led Israel into Canaan. Hiram was the first of its kings. He actually helped David build the palace. And according to 1 Chronicles 22, he helped Solomon build the temple. But three years after this prophecy is given that we just read, Nebuchadnezzar came and laid a 13-year siege against that city. And they had, of course, it's a walled city. So what he had to do, if you're going to attack a walled city... You know, the best way to do that is just cut off anything from going in. No supplies go in after a while. And that's what he did. It took him 13 years. 13 years from 585 B.C. to 573. And finally, the city surrendered because people were dying. Nebuchadnezzar then broke down the walls and the towers, destroyed the city, did every single thing Ezekiel wrote about. And, of course, he wasn't reading Ezekiel while he's doing it to make sure he got it right. And then he didn't find the spoils. He thought he was going to find the spoils. But actually, they had used their fleet to take the spoils off to an island about a half mile off, offshore. So, of course, in, in chapter 29, Ezekiel also said to Neb that Nebuchadnezzar would gain no plunder. You'll gain no plunder. It's because they already moved it. They already moved it to this island. So Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had, he had no navy. So he couldn't go out and get it. So the island became where the new city would flourish for 250 years on this island. 
So one part of the prophecy is fulfilled, and that's when Nebuchadnezzar comes and basically smashes down the walls, slaughters the people, but he doesn't get any spoil because they moved it. But there's much more in the prophecy that's not fulfilled yet. The ruins are still on the old site. They weren't in the sea. They're still there in the rubble. What happens next? Well, 250 years later, a 24-year-old guy by the name of Alexander the Great came. He had 33,000 infantrymen. He had 15,000 cavalry. He just defeated the Persians. He's on his way to Egypt. He needs supplies, so he comes by the city of Tyre, and he sent word to them that my, I need supplies for my men and my horses and my army. And they laughed. They said, you have no navy. Forget about it, buddy. We're not giving you anything. You can't come out here and get it. It's not a good idea to make Alexander the Great mad. So what does he do? He doesn't have a fleet. They're correct. He decides what he's going to do to get to that island is build a causeway from land to the island. So he takes all the rubble and throws it into the sea. Remember that prophecy? I mean, what conqueror takes all that and throws it into the water? But he's making a causeway to the island. He makes a, a, he makes a bridge to that island with all the rubble left over. He builds a 2,000-foot long bridge, 200 feet wide, to all the way to the island. Now, when he gets to it, they also had these walls that went down to the sea on the island. So what's Alexander going to do? How is he going to get in? Well, Alexander, as he gets closest, realizes what he's going to have to do to get over those walls. And so he, he actually makes something called Heliopolis, these uh, massive towers, 160 feet high, about 20 stories high. Imagine that. They held artillery, and they held a big drawbridge on the top. And they begin to move these giant towers up the causeway all the way toward these, this wall island. And as, as they got closer and closer, they, had to, they made these things called tortoise shells for the workers to keep building the causeway and protecting them because they're throwing all kinds of stuff down off the walls and shooting things at them and so forth. It took him seven months to do this. He goes on, he conquers the city, he murders 8,000 people over a period of a few months. He executes 7,000 more. He sells 30,000 of them into slavery. And then he fulfills every detail of the prophecy. And think about this. Jerusalem has been built and rebuilt 17 times. Tyre has never been rebuilt. It's never been rebuilt. Remember God said you will be built no more? You know what they do there now? Guess what they do there now? That's where they stretch out the nets, the fishing nets. Why? Because God said it's going to be like that. That's why. Anything God says is going to happen will happen exactly like he says it. It cannot be stopped. Ezekiel chapter 30 predicted the destruction of Egypt. Nahum chapter 1, destruction of Nineveh. Isaiah 13, the destruction of Babylon. Hosea 13, the destruction of Samaria. Ezekiel 25. Destruction of Moab and Ammon. I mean, what is the possibility of all these things happening the way they were prophesied? Well, one mathematician decided to try to figure out the probability of it actually happening like it was prophesied to happen. His name was Peter Stoner. He took just 11 prophecies, and there's a lot more than that, obviously. There's hundreds. 
He took 11 prophecies with all their details and calculated the probability of that occurring by chance. His conclusion was a probability is 1 in 5.76 times 10 to the 59th power. Now, it's kind of hard to get our minds around, but let me give you an illustration of what that means. That means if you were to take, if you were to go to the Sahara Desert, which is, by, by the way, 3.5 million square miles. If you were to go to the Sahara Desert and you were to paint one grain of sand red and then throw it back in the desert, remember, 3.5 million square miles, and let the sun and the weather winds blow, let the you know, weather have its way, and then you blindfold yourself and just start walking across the Sahara Desert blindfolded, and somewhere along the line decide you're going to bend over and pick up one grain of sand. The chances of that being that one red one is the chances of all these things happening by chance. But God said it was going to happen, and it did. It happened exactly like he said, and everything he says is going to happen that hadn't happened yet is going to happen exactly like it says. Exactly. Why? Because it's the Word of God. We have the Word of God. It cannot err. And then he gives us the sixth point to Timothy and to us of why we should hold fast this truth. He says this. Because all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable, because it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, the man of God may be adequate, fully equipped for every good work. So he says, number six, hold fast to the truth you've learned and believe because the scriptures are profitable. The scriptures can fully equip you, fully, for all the things that are coming on this earth, for all the things that are going to happen in your life. You can be adequately, fully equipped with the word of God. So he says, Timothy, make sure to feed your spirit man. So you'll be strong enough to take on what's coming. Hold on. I tell you, and I just urge you guys, feed your spirit man, feed your spirit woman. Make it more important than having breakfast, having coffee. Say, I have got to make sure I don't just take care of my physical body. I got to take care of my spirit. I got to feed my spirit man. Why? Because man is not lived by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we have the word of God. You have it. Is anybody excited about this? I mean, you have the word of God, the revelation of God, inspired by God, without error. I mean, it is the perfect word of God, and it is profitable. I mean, when I'm discouraged, it encourages me. When I'm weak, it strengthens me. When I'm off track, it gets me back on track. It is the word of God. The Holy Spirit loves to use the word together. The word of God, powerful, powerful, so I urge you. Be in that book. Be people of the book. And these days, more than ever, because, guys, this isn't something passing. We, we are told things are going to go from bad to worse. These are days to make sure you are, you are a man or woman of the, of the Word. Get in the Word of God. Feed your spirit, man, spirit, woman. Let's pray. Let's stand together. Father, how grateful we are to know that our Bible has the words, the very words that proceeded out of your mouth. And then God, you not only know history, you wrote it. And you not only understand science, you created it. And you not only understand the spiritual dimension, you are this reality.
God, we are so grateful for this treasure we have in your word. Help us love your word. Help us honor your word, believe your word, study your word, defend your word, proclaim your word. Make us people of the book who feed on your word every day. That we be able to stand firm in the days to come. In Jesus' name. Before we dismiss, if you would need prayer, we'll have some leaders down front. We'd be glad to pray for you. We have a connection coffee in the corners. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer them. But let me encourage you, this week, start this week. Make sure you're in the word. Feed your spirit. And Father, we also just pray for again for our team that's going to Mexico, these college students. We thank you, Lord, for them. We pray you protect them. We pray you cause them to be shatter the darkness people as they go as the light of the world. And make this that way, too, as we go, Lord, in our places of work, neighborhoods, the places of, of, uh, that we live, also places we recreate, family, everything, Lord. Make us people who make a difference, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody says? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Here's Smith.